want to welcome each one and uh, just realize that there's quite a few missing, which is not that unusual on a long weekend. I know that there's people that are traveling and others that have things going. So, But it is good to have those of you who are here and just trust that our time, the remainder of our time together will be a time of inspiration and blessing. Seems like it's been a little bit of time since I uh, preached the last minute. I was scheduled last Sunday, and then uh, we had Brother Lamar share instead, and I was just really inspired by that message last Sunday. I just thought it was a, a very inspirational message. And uh, just some of the others recently that we've heard here uh, of our co-ministers uh, that have, uh, I just felt have uh, really fed us well. And I trust this morning will be a time again that we will hear from God. I, uh, by God's grace, I want to tackle a subject uh, that in some ways feels outside of my league. Uh, yet I believe it merits our attention. And it's something that we do need to talk as we uh, preach our way through the uh, Strengthening Family series. The goal that God had put on my heart when I began this series is that, uh, that uh, uh, I would be able to give pertinent instruction to every person at every age. And um, so this morning God put a message on my heart to address the adult uh, in this uh, congregation who are unmarried or those who uh, are married but are living single for various reasons. The topic is broad, much bigger than um, the time that I have here this morning. So by God's grace, I trust that I can do justice in my delivery. I uh, mentioned that I don't feel um, that it's a little bit out of my league. I, I certainly don't feel like I'm an authority on this subject, but I do have the distinction of having both a sister and a sister-in-law um, that are older than I uh, that have never been married. And uh, perhaps my, my uh, interaction with them over the years uh, and witnessing some of the unique challenges that they face uh, gives me a little bit of an inside track. And... Uh, I know that it has made me uh, more soft toward uh, those individuals. Uh, and hopefully that background will, will give me some depth. Um, just before I go into the message, uh, as a side note, I'm sure many of you, probably all of you, maybe not quite all of you, are aware that my sister Sharon uh, wrote a single, <laughs> wrote a single, wrote a book for single women. And the book is entitled To Have and to Hold uh, with the subtitle Hope Restored for Single Women. And um, uh, during the time that she was writing this book, she would often send me the proofs to read ahead of time. So I sort of got an inside track on, on uh, what was being written before the book actually came out. And uh, <clears throat> I will... Uh, uh, she does cover uh, a lot of uh, good things in this book. And I will also just quickly say that even though this book is written primarily for single women, uh, it's probably a good book recommended even for those who are married. She addresses some really good things that I think are good for married folks or those who are planning to get married or maybe in that, in that uh, age bracket. Countless young women have been touched, and, uh, and her advice and her life uh, has affected many as she's mentored uh, many of them over the years. There are two primary uh, scriptures that I would like to address this morning that talk about the subject of celibacy. Both Jesus and Paul uh, broach this subject, and they really come at it from two different angles. 
And uh, I want to look at the passage in Matthew first, what Jesus had to say on it. And then we want to go back to the book of Corinthians. It sort of transitions into that passage in Corinthians. And uh, after uh, we look at both of those passages, then I want to wrap the message by sharing some practical advice. Not the Lord, but I, uh, hopefully inspired by the Lord. It's not a commandment from scriptures, what I want to say. But so I would like to give some practical advice how we as married folks can relate to those who are unmarried. And uh, I think maybe the greater part of this message is for that part or portion of the message than for uh, even the, uh, the other parts, although I trust it's good for both. Well, the photo that I have hopefully conveys that uh, what goes along with the title of the message, writing solo in a duo world. That's probably one of the things that many of those who are unmarried struggle with in trying to know where they fit in. And I trust by the end of this message that I will have affirmed each person who is not married that uh, God's evaluation of us is not based on our marital status, but rather on who we are in Christ. And uh, that's what we want to drive at. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. <laughs> Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, by this time, <clears throat> was a prime target for the Pharisees. We talked a little bit about that in our Sunday school this morning. And uh, how the, it's interesting how the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two different sects and, uh, sect of people in the Jewish culture, and they were always butting heads. And uh, yet, when it came to trying to attack Jesus, why they worked together. But the Pharisees and, uh, had uh, obviously tried numerous times to, to, uh, to corner Jesus in his teaching. But in his, in, in his wisdom, he always was able to turn the table and to address issues of their own heart. And uh, the passage in, in Matthew 19 was another such case. Actually, what Jesus taught about celibacy started with a conversation about marriage. And if we go back to the beginning of chapter 19, uh, we see that the Pharisees, in verse 3, uh, came to Jesus, testing him. And that word test means with malicious intent. So they, they came to try to corner him. And they questioned him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? Now, stop to think about what was happening. Only a few chapters earlier, I believe it's in chapter 14 of Matthew, uh, we read where the same subject landed John the Baptist in jail and ultimately was executed for speaking very boldly against the culturally accepted practice of divorce. And we think probably that it was this, this age that we're living in that divorce is a little bit unique to our, to the, in, in the last 60, 80 years of the Western world. And it is in, the, in that case, but it's not historically. Obviously, in Jesus' day, they also faced it. And the Pharisees, by this time, were set to on finding a legitimate reason to put Jesus away, so they conspired together to pit against him. And I'll explain what I mean by this. The rabbis had been arguing for many years what constitutes a legitimate reason for a man to put away his wife? There were two schools of thought. Uh, one school, one rabbinical school, uh, held firmly that the only grounds for divorce was legitimate in the case of fidelity, infidelity. 
when there was unf- uh, marital uh, unfaithfulness, when there was adultery or, or something of the like. So one school taught that's the only time that you can put away your wife is when there's infidelity. The other school believed that anything that displeased the husband was sufficient grounds to obtain a divorce. Well, we can quickly see how the question that they were asking Jesus was going to pit Jesus against one group or the other, depending on how he responds. And so it was a setup for him. Well, Jesus very wisely completely ignores the controversy by giving them three reasons why people should remain married. And he goes into that. The first reason he gives them, in verse 4, he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? If God had intended Adam to have more than one wife, he would have created more. And the same would be true for Eve. That is why Jesus told the woman at the well, when, she, when he asked her uh, about her husband, he informed her that the one that she is living with is really not her husband, because she only really had one legitimate husband. Well, secondly, Jesus then goes on and says, And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. So the second reason is that they should leave father and mother and join to his wife. Marriage is the strongest bond of all human relationships. The word leave means to abandon. And the word join to means to be glued to. These are some very strong terms. Not only is the husband to abandon his relationship, his parental relationship, or the parental bonds to his parents, the bond is what I wanted to to emphasize, he is to abandon his parental bond, and then he is to be glued to his wife. The the, The most permanent relationship in society is not the relationship between a parent and a child, but rather between a husband and a wife. And just stop to think of it. If every couple would only follow this instruction, where the, father, where the husband would abandon the father and the mother and be glued to his wife, we really wouldn't even need to have a discussion about divorce. So Jesus was very wise in his response. And then he goes on and gives a third reason. And he says, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus gave uh, the third reason to counter divorce, that, that the two shall become one flesh. One flesh is deeper than just physical intimacy. But it is also not just talking or speaking about some unhealthy enmeshment where the personalities between the husband and wife become so intertwined that they really don't define the two uh, between uh, the partners. But it's rather talking about a oneness in the relationship that comes from years and years of walking together through the thick and the thin through the tough and the good, slugging it out together. And maybe that's what I was referring to this morning when I was referring to my relationship with Glad, that it seems like we've sort of journeyed the life together. We've gone through some pretty tough stuff, some hard times. And when we can work through those issues in life, I I don't know, I think you just, you enter into a different level of friendship than you face when you're first married. So we see that Jesus really never addressed the original question about divorce. He wisely instructed them that the reason they are bickering about divorce is because they're missing the the, the principle of the original intent for marriage. It's almost as if he would have said in his own words, I'll say in my own words, you get the principle right, and you won't even need to discuss the legitimacy of divorce. 
Well, their response, they came back in verse 7, and they said to him, Well, then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to, and to put her away? And Jesus quickly reminded them, It's because of the hardness of your hearts. And then he quickly says, But from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was not so. When this message soaked into the heads of the disciples, they wondered with amazement and said, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And uh, that response set Jesus up to teach something that brings us to our subject today. Listen to what Jesus said. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made them, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now undoubtedly, Jesus was specifically referring to the eunuchs of their day, quite possibly. However, in principle, it applies to single men and women of today. He gives three reasons why people remain unmarried. One of them is the sovereignty of God. Another one refers to circumstances beyond one's control. And the third one has to do with personal choice. And I'd like to break these three down and talk about each one of them. The first reason he gave there in verse 12, he says, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And this one I would like to refer to as God's sovereignty. Singles and married people, I want to add, live under the mercy and the grace of God's sovereign purpose and will. Now I want to be very careful. I want to be very careful to articulate this point uh, very carefully because whenever we speak about God's sovereignty, we automatically bump into another principle, a corresponding principle referred to as the, uh, the, the free will of man. At first glance, it seems like these principles conflict. They butt heads. How can there be one, and how can both of them walk side by side? A reason of logic would say that if, if there is a sovereign God who holds all things together in his control and at his will, how can man operate with a free will under that kind of control, under that kind of sovereignty? Well, perhaps the best way that we can understand these two principles if we use the first and second things uh, diagram. We've used it numerous times here. Uh, rather than viewing them as opposing ideologies or ideas that are at polar ends from each other, I'd like to think them of them as, as the first and second thing principle. Foundationally, undoubtedly, undisputedly, at the foundation is God's sovereignty. God is God. He chooses to do as he wills. We do not question God's sovereignty. Well, we can question it. But at some point, we must submit ourselves to God's sovereignty unless we keep fighting it repeatedly through life. But within those parameters, within inside of that parameters, God allows man to make choices that affect the outcome of the circumstances. We're not mere puppets dancing unconsciously to every whim of our Creator. I like what John Koblenz wrote in his book, 
um, Christian family living. He wrote it this way. He said, one blessing of viewing God's sovereignty as large enough to permit the flow of human history and the exercise of human choice is that it gives the freedom to trust our lives to his goodness. So inside his sovereignty, we still have a choice to trust him or not. God is big enough to accomplish his will in the lives of his people even while permitting the flow of natural and human events. So whether we're married or single, life circumstances are shaped in part, or at least to some degree, by human choice. Now this information in and of itself really doesn't bring, my, uh, bring a lot of resolution to my personal situation unless I put some foundation, some deeper foundation under my feet. Regardless of our marital status, Creator God longs to have an intimate relationship with His creation, the bride, the church. He wants a relationship with His bride. And when it comes to relationship, he does not differentiate on marital status. Whether single or married, you are chosen by him. I like what the author, uh, Anita Yoder, and boy, Caleb, am I correct? That's your cousin? Caleb's cousin wrote in her book, listen to that, she just has, really has something good to say. I haven't experienced, she's unmarried, she said, I haven't experienced the incredible, mysterious wave of love and acceptance that a bride receives from her beloved. In a way, nothing compares to the radiance and beauty, and sometimes we singles feel as if we were missing a, we're, as if we're missing a delightful feeling and experience. We're missing out to some degree. And yet, now listen very carefully, and yet, in the deepest sense of perfection or completion and acceptance or connection, all of us are already chosen, loved, and cherished by a person who wants to spend the rest of eternity with us. I like that. There's a lot of truth to it. God has chosen. You go to the book of Ephesians. We're chosen, we're accepted, we're adopted, we're predestined. There's a th fifth one, I forget what the last one is. Um, forget what the fifth one is there in the, in the chapter 1 of Ephesians. But that goes for all of us. God has already selected you. And so, regardless of our status, we need to put this kind of foundation underneath our feet in order to be able to live in the freedom that God has for us in his sovereignty. Friends, I can only find resolution for my circumstance when I accept this truth by faith. Some people are more in love with the idea of marriage than the commitment that love requires in marriage. Think about that. Some people are more infatuated with the idea of love than the commitment that love requires in marriage. In other words, some people are more in love with love than with the essence of love, which is Christ Jesus, which is very selfish at its core. Individuals that are in love with love are very selfish people and probably unqualified to be married. The bottom line is that I exist for God and for his purposes, not my own. No matter what our status is in life, God calls us to care for uh, more about his will than for my own and then trust him for what I don't understand. That goes for married people. It is more, it, 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 the, the essence of life is that God calls me to, to care about what he cares about. The best praise I can offer is a life that is surrendered to his purpose. So yes, there is God's sovereignty that we deal with and uh, we need to come to terms with. But it's, it's, it, he invites us to embrace it 
rather than to be imposed upon us. The second reason that he gives in, uh, chapter, in verse 12 is that there are uh, eunuchs who were made eunuchs by man. Now, how does this interpret in 2017? Perhaps we could say that marital status can be affected because of circumstances. Our marital status may not necessarily be driven as much by personal choice as much as it is circumstantially. A lot of things can factor into this point, uh, including um, our, our uh, uh, um, varying personalities. Person I think it's the last one, Richard. Thank you. Um, personalities uh, can, can play into this. Uh, giftings and personalities. Uh, cultural boundaries. Um, I know of a situation where, where a, a young man pursued a girl and their, their, the, the culture from which they came from was so vastly different. Uh, she, could not, she couldn't see the potential of them ever resolving uh, the, the differences in, 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 in the cultures. Uh, I, I do also have some very good friends, some very close friends, that came from some very extreme cultural backgrounds, even ethnic backgrounds. And uh, they do have some very unique struggles in their marriage. And so, so that can also, I mean, it definitely can happen uh, to where there's a marriage, but it can also work in the, in the way that it, it, it could work against, uh, against marriage. Uh, health issues uh, can, can affect it. Uh, the ratio of male and females in our circle of acquaintances can have a bearing. Uh, or geographical placement. You know, if you live, if you grow up in a, in a remote area of the world and you don't have interaction with, with uh, certain uh, individuals, that can affect uh, the, the circumstances. Values and convictions can uh, make a difference. And, and, and there's a lot of other reasons. I just mentioned a few. Some young ladies have been asked numerous times by potential suitors for a relationship. And yet, none of them seem to have an appropriate level of appeal or attraction to the young lady. Uh, others have uh, never been given the opportunity. So circumstances certainly drive uh, the situation. I think Jesus recognized that. The wisest man who ever lived gave us some very good counsel in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture, in all your ways. And this doesn't just go for the single uh, folks. It goes for everyone. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. If your passion is to love God supremely, then we can be assured, regardless of the circumstances, that we were directed by God. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of rest in that knowledge. The third reason that Jesus gave, it says that, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept him, let him accept it. Now, Jesus realized or recognized that some have taken an oath of celibacy by personal choice for the sake of the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uh, would indicate this level of celibacy as a spiritual gift. Some would recognize celibacy as one of the spiritual gifts. Uh, and, and if you have your Bibles, turn back to 1 Corinthians 7 because we're going to spend the rest of the time back there in 1 Corinthians 7. But look at verse 7. He says, but I wish, and he's speaking for himself, but I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So I think Paul is recognizing that celibacy is a gift 
that God gives certain people. Um, Jesus also understood that not all people can understand this role, but those who can accept it, let him accept it. Well, this third point that Jesus gave, I think, naturally transitions into the text in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul had this to say about the matter. And rather than reading the entire uh, text here, uh, because it's uh, quite lengthy from 25, verse 25 to the end, verse 40, uh, I'm just going to pick out several points uh, due to the length of the passage. Three things that I want to say about Paul as he addresses this subject. The first one is simply that Paul recognized that some of his teaching was preferential rather than instruction from God. So I want to put the same thing out to you. Back in verse 6 of chapter 7, Paul says, But I say this as a concession, or the idea is with permission, uh, not as a commandment. So he's very clear in saying that this is a preference that I'm giving to you. It's not a commandment from the Lord. Back in verse 25, he says basically the same thing. He says, I have not commanded, I have not, sorry, I think I miss, um, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has uh, made trustworthy. So again, he's just recognizing that what I've got to share is not necessarily a commandment from the Lord, uh, but this is what I want to say. He then goes on uh, to talk about his, his own single state, especially there in verse 6. And he says that I wish that there were others like me. Uh, while this might be hard for some of us to understand his position, uh, we cannot dispute the fact that he was talking from personal experience. In other words... He was not recommending something that he himself was not willing to live out. So while this is not a, a, a command from God, we do give Paul credit as one who spoke with experience. The second thing I would just like to say about Paul, by the way, sorry I, put, uh, I had those passages there. The second point that, Paul, that I would like to say uh, about Paul is that Paul was not against marriage. Uh, verse 27 and 28, uh, he, he, he re uh, reiterates this. He said, are you bound to your wife? Do not seek to be loose. And then a little bit later on, 27, but even if you are married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's very clear that marriage is not sin. He's not against marriage. Verse 36, and if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin... If she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. And this particular verse, uh, I, I'm not going to take the time to, to delve into it. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of interpretations out there for this. I personally believe this is talking about the father with his daughter. That would be my personal position. Uh, there are some others that would view it differently, but I don't think we want to get hung up there uh, due to the, uh, to the course of the discussion this morning. There are ample scriptures where the Apostle Paul gives specific instruction concerning marriage. I think he wants to be clearly understood that he is not prohibiting marriage. In fact, his letter to Timothy, if we go back in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he prophetically predicted that in the last times there are going to be some of the false prophets out there who are going to forbid people uh, from marrying. And these individuals, are, uh, he's saying that, that, that in the last times there are many that are going to depart from the faith. And these individuals will, will uh, instruct and forbid people to marry. And he was saying this as, as something that was not good, something that we need to guard against. So he was not against marriage. However, he does recognize, back again in chapter 7, that those who are married have obligations 
within that relationship that can distract them from the things of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 33 and 34, parts of each of the verses. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And then a little bit later on, uh, he goes on to talk about the wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. But she who is married cares for the things of this world, how she may please her husband. He does not say this critically, but simply recognizes couples have made commitments in that relationship that bind them to certain obligations. This does not mean that the one who is married loves God less. Nor is the single person's ministry more important or more spiritual than those who are married. The third point that I'd like to make in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul recognizes that there are less distractions when one chooses celibacy while serving the Lord. A couple verses that he brings out. One is in verse 32, but I want you to be without care. That's his reason. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then in verse 34, he's talking about the woman. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in body and in spirit. And then finally, in verse 35, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Our tendency is to think that those who take the oath of celibacy were born with some special internal mechanism that makes them immune to a desire for marriage. And that is not necessarily the case. That's often not the case. In fact, their ability to lay down their personal desire for marriage for the sake of duty is an act of love in its purest form. It's really what every couple, the, the, the same attitude every couple needs to make when they enter into marriage. I'm willing to lay down my life for my partner. If you have in mind that you're going to get the benefit of the marriage, you're heading down a very, very rocky road. Again, we're not making a distinction on spirituality. The husband that goes to work every morning at 6 o'clock or 7 or 5, whatever it is, and he goes there sacrificially to provide for his family, has just as much of a calling from God as the man who chooses to live celibately to serve God in the public arena. The difference really has to do with focus. You see, the, the, the married man chooses to focus his attention to be a lover of God through the ministry to his family, while the unmarried man focuses to unite his purpose in serving God from an equally committed heart. So, I would just like to reiterate again and to emphasize that each one is called to love God supremely. We come before Almighty God individually. Even married people will come before God and stand before Him by themselves, not with their partner. So, Paul has some good instruction. He gives us some wise instruction. He gives us some instruction from experience. It's not some person shooting off his mouth <laughs> that is not willing to go through what he's recommending. And uh, I think we need to honor those who follow that call. I would like to transition in the message now to talk more to the congregation, to people within the congregation, particularly married uh, couples, uh, that uh, maybe just some very practical instruction for us. 
writing duo or writing single in a dual world creates some unique challenges. Uh, my sister said that it's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Sometimes those of us who are married do not filter life through the grid of a single person. However, I think we would do well to heighten our sensitivity toward them. Hence, I want to leave you with a few practical exhortations to help us be able to serve them better. The first exhortation that I would like to give you is to treat them with dignity. Single people are already conscious of their present state. Much of life seems to come in pairs or in twos. There are male and females. There are husband and wives. The farmer pairs a team of horses to the plow. Most meal tables have a salt and a pepper shaker. Electricians work with positives and negatives. And the list goes on and on. And sometimes single people can be very sensitive to this reality. How do they fit in? Where do they fit in? How are they supposed to navigate in this dual world? And so we should be extra careful not to amplify their discomfort. Their dignity is not grounded in their marital status. We've already talked about that. Rather, who they are in Christ. And I think we can help them, affirm them in that area. We should treat them such. Know of a situation where an older single person was invited away uh, to someone's place for a meal. And um, the place where they were was, was crowded. They didn't quite have enough a place for everybody to sit at the main table. So once all the couples were seated, there was one, they were one short. <clears throat> um, and so they asked this sister to sit out in the kitchen with the younger children to eat the meal. How do you think she felt? So I think we just need to be very careful that we don't uh, destroy their dignity as individuals. Secondly, um, <clears throat> be at ease with their singlehood. They, they will feel even more uncomfortable when they sense your discomfort. Now our Anabaptist culture places a high value on marriage and families, and rightly so. But this can also place undue expectations on our youth to find life partners that they really shouldn't need to experience. Marilyn McGinnis, in her book, Singled, entitled Single, states that any girl who is willing to lower her standards can get married if she wants to. And I would put in there, uh, it's the same for, for guys as well. Anyone who is willing to lower their standards can get married if they want to. I'll put it in my own words. Now surely we would not cause our youth to stoop to that level. Encourage them rather. I think we need to encourage them rather to live a life of fidelity and holiness and righteousness to the Lord rather than lowering their guard. It's easy to be insensitive or to say insensitive things to unmarried people. And sometimes we say it in jest and suggest marriage or something about marriage that puts that person in a very uncomfortable position. And I think we need to be very careful about that. Thirdly, I think it is, we would do well to recognize their maturity. I'm bothered when we assume that marriage is the benchmark for maturity. There are many 
married young couples who are given responsibilities in the church simply by virtue of their marital status. While there are, while there are uh, much older, uh, wiser, and individuals with more life experience that are never given those opportunities. And I think we should pause and consider that. I'll give you a for instance. How many young single pastors do you know that are not married? Now I do know of a couple of them. And I commend the church that recognizes the gift of a young man even though he's not married. So I think we need to be very careful about that. That we don't give or that we don't place maturity, we don't make marriage the benchmark of maturity. Fourthly, recognize or ask for their opinions. I think we can affirm them as individuals if we include them in making decisions. Why would their opinion not matter or their advice not matter? Maybe they have insights into things that your narrow world has never considered. And so I would just encourage you to seek their advice and their opinion. I would exhort you not to lump them all together. I want to challenge you to think outside the box. I'm just going to take one example, but there are many ways that this fits. Perhaps it's best if we don't sit single people with all other uh, single. Uh, perhaps it's best if we don't seat single people with other single people in a room full of couples. Maybe they enjoy being mixed in with couples when they sit around a table. Have you ever considered how this could heighten their comfort or slash discomfort, depending how we how we uh, how we proceed in this? A married couple or a married person might conclude that that they really don't feel that way about the single people, but that's because you're seeing it from your perspective. I would encourage you to think about how they see it from their world, and so it's just trying to understand and to walk alongside of them. By the way, I asked some, some unmarried folks what kind of advice they would give. So listen, okay? Include them in your conversations. Recently I was in a conversation with a single person that lamented how awkward it is for them as a single girl to attend a social gathering where there were a lot of couples, married couples, in that, in, in, in that social gathering. So one of her friends gave an example of a, an event that she uh, attended recently, a function like that. And she went rather reluctantly because they always, she said she always feels like she's the odd one in the bunch. So she did attend the, 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 uh, the function, the event, and when she finally gathered up courage within herself to walk up to a couple to initiate a conversation, she said before long the husband of the couple uh, started looking away and, and, and before long walked away and she was left with his wife to talk to. Now I am sure that man had no malicious intent. But how do you think that made her feel? Men, I just want to challenge you to be man enough for you to initiate conversations with single ladies. I'm sure they enjoy interaction with you uh, when there's wholesome and appropriate conversations with them. Next, I would just like to exhort you not to assume upon their availability. And by the way, I'm not referring to availability in marriage. But rather their availability to babysit your children while you go out for an evening by yourself. Or their availability to cover for you at work. Or their availability to borrow money from them. Or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask them 
But the key word is don't assume it from them. I think that's the key word. Don't assume it from them. And then lastly, the exhortation that I would leave with you is to include singles in a duo world. There are many times when we as couples or families do things together. I think we should make an extra effort to include single people in our social events. For instance, what if the anniversary couples who are going out for a meal together uh, to celebrate our anniversaries would check the calendar and see who the single people are that have birthdays that month and then tell them to find a friend and to join us for that evening of going out to eat. And then that way we could honor and celebrate their life as well with them. Are there other ways that we can find ways to include them in these events so that they're not overlooked and that they also feel part of the family? One of the things that my sister told me when I chatted her about this, she said, you know, I never feel single when I'm, with your fam when I'm with my family because you never make me feel single. You always include me in it. And I just wonder, wouldn't it be neat if there'd be a testimony of the family at Berea that the single people would say, you know, I never feel single when I'm with my family at Berea. Perhaps it's possible to fit more on the bike than what we once thought. Let's pause for prayer, and then Keith, I'm going to let you close. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. And we thank you, Father, for each of the people in this congregation whom you've called to walk alone. Lord, I would just, I first of all just thank you that they are just as special to us and to you, regardless of the marital status. And Father, forgive us for the times that we have overlooked them and where we have not validated them. Lord, I'm sure there's, there's place for improvement in this. And so we ask that you would call us to a higher walk. Bless and keep each one. Help us to honor you. And may you be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.